Well, there are two kinds of waiting in life. The first kind is the waiting room kind. The kind where you're just waiting for something that uh, isn't all that exciting. I think of getting an oil change, for example. No offense to those of you who change oil. It's just not exciting to wait on it. It doesn't change my life. My mind wanders. I check out. I don't care. My life is not changed, and that's just fine. It's an oil change. It needs to be done. But then there's the wedding kind of waiting. The kind you're waiting on something that is exciting. It's hard for a bride to wait for her wedding day. Yes, it is hard for the groom too. Yet the entire experience, though it would include difficulty, is colored by a vision of what is to come. Or better, a vision of who is to come. And this vision adds energy and perspective, endurance and productivity to the waiting There is no checking out. There is no caring less. There is only caring more. This waiting is a preparation. And it's a preparation for someone and for something to prepare for. Well, the Bible is a book of promise and fulfillment with waiting in between. Waiting on every page. And that waiting is the wedding kind of waiting. Please open with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. I'll spend a few minutes at the head here setting us up with some background and context, but this is where we'll read in a moment. Our text will be Isaiah 56 through 66, but we'll read in a moment Isaiah 62. Well, as you're turning there, by way of review, Isaiah writes with a vision of two cities, the city of man versus the city of God. The city that trusts in man and man's strength and this world and what is perceived as strong. And the city that trusts in God and his word and his promise. Two appearances in the present but two opposite outcomes in the end. Isaiah writes with two visions and Isaiah writes to three different audiences in his book. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah wrote to the Jerusalem of his day. Jerusalem in sin, Jerusalem in ruins, Jerusalem whose king would not trust God for anything. And as sure as Adam was booted from the garden, these people would be exiled to Babylon on account of their lack of faith in God. And yet, through the word of his prophet Isaiah, there was hope. God gave hope. A shoot would spring up from a stump. God would cut them all the way down, but not completely, down to a stump and a shoot. Life would come out from that stump. A child would be born, a king who would sit on David's throne, born of a virgin, A prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor. In chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah wrote to that exiled generation with good news. He said, comfort, comfort my people. God is building a highway. He will come to get you and he will bring you home to your land, to Jerusalem. And even better, he will deal with the sin that landed you there in this mess in the first place. And how would he deal with it? How would he deal with sin? God would crush his innocent servant so that his guilty people may go free and not only sing his songs of praise, but serve him as they were intended. He would utterly reverse their fortunes on account of the reversal of the fortunes of his innocent servant. They would return to the land. The city would be in ruins. The city that was in ruins would be rebuilt. Jerusalem would undergo a renovation of truly, truly heavenly proportions. Now, in chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah writes to yet a third audience, 
The audience for these chapters is the generation that has returned to Jerusalem from exile. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, they would find out that they had yet some waiting to do on God's promises. Their expectations for their return were rightly high because of God's promises, but their experience was hard. While they were gone, foreigners had moved into the land, which was a little awkward when you're moving back in. They had to figure that out. Persia, who sent them back into their land, was also the new neighborhood boss. Judea had been enveloped into Persia's empire. Limited resources and the scorn of surrounding nations made stability and flourishing nearly impossible. And saddest of all, Jerusalem's king and temple wouldn't even be hold a match to the glory of the temple and the city and the king in Solomon's day even. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah give us the background. God's highway led to Jerusalem, yes, but God's highway had a lot of road left. Had a lot of road left and they would find it out. Well, chapter 62 is a snapshot of where that highway would one day lead. And these are the words to a generation who needed to hear these words. And so do we, for we wait as well for what is pictured here. Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. In Jerusalem, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the, God, of, of the Lord. And the royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you your walls O Jerusalem over them I have set a watchman all the day and all the night they shall never be silent you who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be your food of your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. A vision of two cities, and this is the second, the better city, the one we want to find ourselves in. Sought out, a city not forsaken, a city redeemed. This is what God's people returning to Jerusalem needed badly to hear, because they were not this yet. And it's what we need to hear today. Just like Isaiah's audience, we too are living inside our salvation, but inside a salvation that is not yet complete. And don't we know it? We live inside the tension of the already, what God has already brought about, and the not yet. It is not yet complete. 
The New Testament is written to us, those who cry out, Abba, Father, as sons of God, and yet who eagerly await our adoption as sons at the return of Christ, the redemption of our bodies. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the author of Hebrews says, and yet we look forward to the city whose maker and designer and builder is God. We are new creatures in Christ, and yet we await a new creation. And every day we remember that we belong to God, and yet we We are not complete yet. He is not done with us. So similar is our position to the readers of this section that Peter wrote to Christians. What Peter wrote to Christians is practically our outline. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, he asks, waiting for and hastening the coming, coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought you to be? That's our first point. Isaiah will write to this generation to teach them about how they are to live as they wait. And our answer to that question is shaped by who and what we're waiting for, which form our two second second points. And third points, good work Peter in giving us a good outline. Peter was a good preacher. But he's writing to people in the middle of the same tension, looking forward to the same things as Isaiah did in 56 through 66. So the first question, what sort of people ought we to be? How, how are we to wait for the fullness of God's promises? Well, we wait as a new people. We wait as a new people. Chapters 56 through 59, God's new people are characterized by two things. Two things in these chapters, devotion to God and contrition for sin. Devotion to God, contrition for sin. Turn to chapter 56 with me. Verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Well, positively, here's what waiting looks like. Devotion to God, whole devotion to God. Keep justice, do righteousness, he says, for my salvation is coming for those who belong to the righteous God, who is bringing his righteousness when he comes in the fullness of salvation. They ought to reflect the righteousness of God, that we belong to him means that our lives are transformed. We reflect his righteousness. None of this worshiping other gods or oppressing the poor. God's people are a taste in this world of the next. We belong to another place, to God. He says, keep Sabbath. In the verses following, he'll say it three times. Keep Sabbath. This refers to the once every seven day rhythm of rest God gave to his people that reflects his ordering and creation. And when they keep it, they're trusting him. It's, it's, a, it's a center of their life and it's a centering element of their life and rhythm that God gave them. And their keeping of the Sabbath, resting every seven days, is a reflection of their whole life of trust to God. They order their whole life around this command. This is faithful waiting for them, whole devotion to God. Faithful waiting also means faithful devotion, whole devotion to God's mission. His mission. Remember Israel's job description, a light to the nations? Well, upon returning from exile, they found foreigners in their land, which would make this sort of easy. 
Look at verse 3 with me in chapter 56. We'll read through verse 8. Here's a command. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate us, me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, uh, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accompanied, accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Ever wonder where you're at on the page of Isaiah? You're right here. Most of us, at least, are not of ethnic descent from Abraham. We're foreigners. Foreigners and eunuchs who joined themselves to the Lord are not second-class temporary citizens. It was always God's purpose through his people that light and salvation would go to the nations. And here, God is making provision for us. God's temple will be a place to pray for the nations. For this very kind of conversion, the book will end with these words. The time is coming to gather all the nations in tongues and they shall come and see my glory and bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. God's plan through ethnic Israel has always been a unified, multi-ethnic worshiping community like we have in this room right now. Praise the Lord. Remember Isaiah's vision earlier in the book of Egypt and Assyria and Jerusalem? The three least likely characters to be united in anything, united in the worship of God. He was furnishing a vision of the future with the characters of the present. And he saw a worldwide, unified, worshiping community. Cool. I love the account in Acts of the Ethiopian eunuch. If you've come across this in chapter 8, this Ethiopian eunuch is riding in his chariot and he's reading the Bible. He happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. He happens to be reading Isaiah 53 with the lamb led to the slaughter part, you know. And uh, God sends Philip over there to him and the eunuch says to Philip, Hey, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say? About himself or to someone else? Who is this lamb led to the slaughter? Then Philip opened his mouth. Which is, by the way, what you have to do if you're going to preach the gospel. And beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. Imagine this eunuch's comfort when he keeps reading and realizes that God has actually made provision and spoken about him in his word. And how he'll make him a servant in his house and give him a name that won't be cut off. He's not to wonder if he'll be separated from God. And so here we are. That's positively how they're to live. Devoted to God and devoted to God's mission. Well, negatively, devotion to God, as verse 2 says, means keeping their hands away from doing any evil. And if there is any reminder that God's salvation work is not complete, that we are not in heaven yet, the new creation yet, it is commands to flee from evil given to the people of God. 
In the interim period, there will be temptations to short-circuit God's timeline and take a shortcut to joy. That's what sin always does. Of course, sinful pleasures are always fleeting pleasures. They do not last, certainly, into eternity. They take more than they give. It demands and attempts to secure for the present the joys that are reserved for later. This is what sin does. And we have to be commanded to keep our hands from evil because we can't always see straight. When you wake up every morning and the things that go on in your mind and the desires you have in your heart are a reminder that we are not in heaven yet. Take some comfort that the whole New Testament is replete with commands to Christians who have the Spirit and need reminding and need help and need accountability and need the Word. Stay in the Word. You and I are here today with our sins and sinful motives and grumpy hearts and our angry shouts and sneaky ways. God, please keep us from temptation. Why has God allowed this waiting? Maybe you struggle and you wonder why God has left me with these desires, with these thoughts, with these sins. And maybe you're tempted to just say, well, he must have given them to me. He approves of them. Maybe I need to lean into them. No, he has left you with these desires and left you incomplete, although his project has begun in you of salvation and transformation. He has done it to provide a context for your trust in him that otherwise you would not have an opportunity to express. And he has left you with it for the opportunity for him in his time to prove himself faithful to his word. How we should pray not to fall into the sins warned in these chapters. Father, we should pray, may you never ask of us what you asked of Israel in those days. In 57.4, whom are you mocking, God asks. Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? That's how he pictures Israel and their sin. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with the lusts among the oaks, the worship of other gods, and under every green tree who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. God help us. This is what he has saved us from. False gods, by the way, when they get their way, always demand the lives of our children. This is because Satan stands behind them all. And Satan hates God and those who bear his image. Some in this room may have taken or pressured somebody into taking their child to their death. There is forgiveness, as we will see. Praise the Lord for the concrete, contrite. God, help us not to go where we have come from. That is where sin leads. The slaughter of our children, the worship of other gods, always leads there eventually. And Father, may you never say to us that, you, that we have deserted you. Say to us, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it and you have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed and looked on their nakedness. See, he pictures here our rebellion against God in adulterous terms. And if you, God forbid, have been forsaken by a partner... There is forgiveness for those of you who have committed adultery if you repent of your sin and come to Christ. We have to say that. But if you have been forsaken by a partner and know that heartache, and I do not know that heartache, and you feel alone in that, and you are crushed under the feeling of abandonment and the horror of that, uh, that break in a relationship, well, you, you actually can perceive what God is trying to get across to us in a special way here. At least cash that suffering in 
for the better perception of the extent of all of our sin. One of the saddest parts of a hardened adulterer or adulteress is that he or she no longer feels over time after hardening the heart, feels the, the, tr- the effects of the sin on the lives of other people. And this is, too, the same thing that happens in the human heart. As we continue in sin, we grow callous so that we cannot feel its effects. We can even tell ourselves that God is okay with us as we indulge. May we not forsake our God for other lovers. Now, we are in a similar situation as the original readers. I need to say this, but we are not in exactly the same situation, and that's important. They did not have the spirit, the full forgiveness of sins, and they did not have new hearts. So in a very real sense, the kinds of things that God is commanding them to stay away from aren't things that we are drawn to as we were without the spirit and without new hearts. Nevertheless, we heed these warnings as such and remember what we are capable of. And let us never misunderstand if we find ourselves obedient to God as he has commanded that our righteousness is somehow meriting God's favor. It can happen that you become a Christian, you give yourself to the word, and by golly, God is changing you, and you're obedient, and you desire to please him, and then it becomes twisted and mixed up with your pride and turns into a kind of a boasting in your life. Beware. Remember how this chapter began. Keep justice and do righteousness. That's the command. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Salvation is sure and it changes lives, but the changed life is a result of the salvation. Our pursuit of righteousness is because of salvation, not not for salvation. We do not merit God's favor on a part of our own works, only Christ's. And also note that Paul, when in Romans 3, wanted to make an airtight argument of the universal condemnation of humanity under sin. He went to Isaiah 59 for language to do it. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they're swift to shed innocent blood and their thoughts and their thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways and the way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their, in their paths. No one is righteous, no, not one. But, Paul will add, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Isaiah is one of those prophets. And Isaiah does not mean here to give us commands to be righteous as though righteousness on account of our works is a way to being right with God. No, salvation is promised, salvation comes. Righteousness is only available through the righteous servant who suffered in the place of the unrighteous, which is us. It's the only way. Don't forget it when we hear commands. So how do we know the righteous Righteousness of God is ours through Christ. How do we know that, that his righteousness is ours and that God accepts us? We've heard a word about devotion to God and a word about, now a word about contrition for sin. Because we are not devoted people, not as devoted as to the people we should be. We should wonder sometimes if we're really Christians, if we're really Christians. We should be introspective enough to wonder how we thought that and wanted to do that and actually did that. A mark of true Christianity is a mark of true concern to be right with God. True contrition before God. This is good news. 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Remember Isaiah 6. The Lord in his temple high and lifted up. Who inhabits what eternity. Whose name is holy. 
Here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place. Intimidated yet? And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Verse 19, peace, peace to the far off and to the near, says the Lord. Verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Peace to the far off and to the near, to the Jew and to the Gentile. For any, in other words, that come to God in faith and say with a contrite and not a contriving spirit, I have been wrong and I am wrong, forgive me. The God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, that's his house, eternity is house, he will dwell with you if you come to him contrite for your sin, lowly before him with nothing to offer, only to receive. There is peace for you. There is no peace apart from contrition for sin. A life of total devotion to God, a life of contrition for sin. Well, are you still struggling to live up to everything this would entail for you? Well, I am. I'm not as devoted to God as I should be in so many ways, and neither am I, am I as contrite for sin as I should be in so many ways. Medicine, though, is on the way. And what is that medicine? It is a vision of who and what we're waiting for. It's a vision of who and what is to come. There is nothing more that I hate than standing in the freezing cold in the dead of winter, December or January, in Oklahoma, putting gas in my car. Anyone ever done that? It's cold. You're standing there looking at your car, wondering what you're doing outside in the cold, standing there in Oklahoma in the winter. If you're not looking at your car, you're looking at the pump and watching the number go up. It's no fun. And then I remind myself of who I'm going to see. Why would I be in Oklahoma in the dead of winter filling my car up? I'm on my way to St. Louis or Chicago or Michigan to visit with family like we do once a year. It's no problem to stand in the cold and fill my car up. When that's what I'm going to see, that's who I'm going to see. When that's what I'm going for to celebrate family and to celebrate Christmas with family, well, it makes a difference. I'd never do that otherwise. Well, you might be standing out in the freezing cold wondering, what am I doing here? Am I even supposed to be here? And it's going to matter in your mind and heart where you perceive this whole thing is going. If you think everything just continues on as it has always continued, you're going to have a really hard time enduring the cold. But if you see time is moving in a direction and someone coming and something coming, well, that will make a difference. And in the same way that Peter reminded us of who and what was coming at the beginning of the sermon, so Isaiah and the rest of the book is going to remind us of who and what is coming. Who then are we waiting for? Chapters 60 through 62. We wait for a new king. We wait for a new king. Chapters 60 through 62 form the center of this last section in Isaiah's book. Hebrew writers would often do this. They want to emphasize something, stick it in the middle. This is right in the middle. This is the center of the material and it's the center of the message of this last section. We get a ramp up to it in chapter 59 and we'll spend a few minutes in a few verses in chapter 59. God gets his gear on, 59.17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
God is saying, I am dressed and I am coming and I will win. Remember that the next time you read Ephesians chapter 6, if you recognized the imagery. But then in verse 20, we see that God is coming through his redeemer, through a king. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And this is how it works, by the way. God promises, I'm coming to save. I'm coming personally. Yahweh is on his way. Comfort, comfort. Make a highway for my God. Raise up the seas, flatten the mountains. God is coming for his people. Then lo and behold, God's king is coming for his people. His servant will come and suffer. Well, here, God is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. And now his redeemer is coming. He comes through his king. God's king, how will he come? He will come with a new covenant, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth or forevermore. God has a covenant for his people, for them, that he mediates through his king. My spirit is upon you. His words will be on the king's mouth, it will be on the people's mouth. A brief word about covenant, because what we've just done here with this word is we have struck a chord that travels through the whole Bible, and it's a thick one, and you can't miss it. Up until this point, every covenant God established with his people had failed mediators. He creates covenants with his people through mediators. Abraham was not without sin. Moses was not without sin. David and certainly the kings that followed were not without sin. God's covenant promises and these covenants he makes with his people are always unilateral. He makes promises. He will absolutely keep his promises. But these covenants are also conditional in a specific sense, an important sense, in that the blessings of God promised only come to his people in response to their obedience. The curse of the exile is a great illustration of this, where God promises that he will not totally destroy them. He promises a king. He promises a new creation. And yet, because of the failure of their king and their failure to trust them, they go to exile. The blessings of God's promise will come about in coordination with their obedience to God. So where is the hope if no human king, no human mediator can faithfully fulfill our covenant part. What will God do? Well, here's what he does. He's going to go ahead and send a king of his own, a divine king, a divine human king who will fulfill their part of the covenant. The redeemer brings the new covenant and those who are joined to him are safe. My covenant with them, my spirit is upon you. God's king comes. This is a different kind of mediator with a different kind of covenant. A divine king, God's king will bring a new covenant. He will come as well with light, chapter 60. And how I wish I could unbutton the roof on this place so the sun could beam down into our auditorium. It's hard to crawl inside a dark room like this with artificial light and then read these words. But here it is. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, 
nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Lit up by the light of their king, God's people would be a light to the world. God's king will come with a new covenant. He will come with light. And God's king will come with good news of great reversals. Chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of the vengeance of our God. When this king comes, he will come and bring about dramatic reversals. He will reverse the estate of the lowly, and he will reverse the state of the proud. It will be a good day for some and a bad day for others. He also comes with a new name for his city. Chapter 62, which we read at the beginning, is actually the first person words of this king to his people. Verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken, for your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Does your vision of God, does your, do your thoughts about God include his delight in you? That is, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in his king, if you are trusting in his word, you've joined yourself to him, do you realize that he delights in you? We can't miss his sovereignty and his justice and his holiness in our vision of God, and those sure are things that are easily missed in our day and by us, but we cannot fail in emphasizing those things to miss this, that God delights in his people, he loves you, he also leads his people home, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway. Comfort, comfort, build up the highway. The Lord is coming and he is gathering his people along the way to Jerusalem. Make room for my people on this road. Verse 12, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. What a beautiful reversal for God's people. What a beautiful new name. And finally, the king comes with victory over all evil. Victory over all evil. With the same vivid imagery, I warn you, that Isaiah has used to depict the glory of heaven in meeting our king. He uses now to depict the judgment that he will bring on those who do not turn to him. 63 verse 2 Here's a question for the king. Why is your apparel red? And your garments, why are your garments like his who tread the wine press? Have you been out treading the wine? Here's the answer. I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This is the same language that will be used in the book of Revelation to depict Jesus' return and the judgment that he'll bring on the earth. In the course of our life, we will cry out for justice a number of times. 
Maybe if you are hurt, offended, something horrifying happens in your life on account of someone else's sins and you will cry out for justice. Certainly when we watch the news, we ought to at times cry out for justice. We all know what it means to cry out for justice. There is great wickedness in the world that grows out of the heart of humankind, capable of horrifying, horrifying things. And everything any one of the worst of us will do grows out of the heart that is common to us all. God will not restore his universe and use uh, and, and leave things and leave the rubble. God will fix the place up and he will discard the broken pipes. He will discard, he will trample, he will destroy the warped boards. He will renew some, but those that he does not use will be discarded. Demolition. Jesus is going to do a reset on the universe and it will mean getting rid of all evil. It will mean executing his justice. As sure as he will come, he will come again. And as sure as he has come, he will come again in judgment. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 3. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We see where the renovation project of the universe and his people and his city begins. We fast forward in the story now in the Bible. It's been several hundred years, 400 of which were total silence from God and his prophets. Then a man named John the Baptist shows up from the wilderness, and this is Luke's account. Verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and every hill be made low, the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Recognize that from last week, that's Isaiah 40. Jesus is here, John the Baptist is preaching forgiveness of sins and that Jesus is coming and Luke is saying, that's fulfilling Isaiah 40. Make a highway for God. He's coming. Jesus is him. Jesus is baptized. Then God's spirit comes upon him. His spirit comes upon him. Now Luke chapter 4 verse 16. Jesus was tempted and now this happens. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as he was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Hmm. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then he dropped the mic. I am king, is what he's saying. Now, it's foolish to say that because that gets you, gets you killed, right? It's exactly the point. It's not a problem. It's actually part of the plan. That's the cost of giving his city a new name. If he's going to restore any of us, he's going to have to suffer the wine press treading that we deserve and he'll do that 
on the cross. But did you notice something that Jesus left out in his quotation of Isaiah? Did you notice where Jesus stopped? He stopped without reading this very next line, that he will bring a day of vengeance of our God. And why? Because what Jesus will bring, he will bring in two parts. He will come once to deal with sin, and he will come, that is, to suffer for his people, and he will come again to judge and to rescue his people. So how do we live in the meantime? Like he did when he came the first time. That's the message of Mark, by the way. Interesting. Mark begins his gospel with a quote from Isaiah 40, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. You might begin the gospel of Mark and think, random Old Testament quote, could have done without that. No, it's like a thesis for the whole book. It sets the trajectory for the whole book. Mark begins and structures his whole gospel with the theme of the way. Twelve times he will carefully situate a reference to the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus makes his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Yahweh is coming. Comfort, comfort my people. He is coming for his people to collect them and take them to Jerusalem. Well, here is Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, who is coming to collect his people on his way to Jerusalem to be enthroned as king. And across the book, he is collecting his disciples. Interesting. God promised to come and gather his people on the way to Jerusalem, and that's what Jesus does. God's king will shine his light and reverse the blindness of his own people so that they may turn to be a light to the nations. And Jesus, God's king, gives sight to two blind men. And in between these two encounters, he says things like this. You have, two, you have two healings of a blind man, chapter 8 and chapter 10. Within a verse, you have a reference to the way. You have six references to the way in between these healings of blind men. Remember what God comes to do? To be light, to shine light, to open blind eyes. In between these two bookends, these healings of blind men, we read things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or like this. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What are these statements about service and suffering doing between two healings of blind men mixed in with multiple references to the way? Well, the highway out of exile to the New Jerusalem is long, and it's going to run through a cross. Jesus is Yahweh come to get his people and to die for his people, the suffering servant. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he will be crowned but with thorns and lifted up but on a cross and he will be enthroned but in a tomb. Jesus' disciples are blind, which is part of the point, to God's plans about Jesus' suffering. But Jesus will shine his light through his suffering on his disciples so that they will not always be blind. They will in time see. And in seeing, they will be a light to those around them, the nations, about who the real king is, the king who suffers in the place of sinners. They were not blind in the end, and we are not blind now. Our eyes have been opened to see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and returning to finish his work. It's why the New Testament will even define conversion as turning from idols to serve the living God and to wait for the Son from heaven. Christianity does not include waiting. Christianity is waiting. It frames all of life for us. 
And so as we wait, we live now to serve him as Jesus served on his way to his enthronement. Imperfectly, yes. But that's why we can say with the Apostle John, we are God's children now already. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And so we follow Jesus on the way of the cross now imperfectly, but when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. His light will shine on us, and we will shine like him. This is who we're waiting for. And what does he bring? What are we waiting for? Well, here's where it all leads. Chapters 36 through 60, 63 through 66. We wait for a new creation. We wait for a new creation. We're going to camp out together just in 65. Sometimes we have a service, well, we have a service evaluation meeting each week, and we meet, and sometimes as filler, Ryan will ask us, what is your most dominant emotion right now? It is cause for much silliness and nonsense in conversation, and uh, I'm wondering what will happen the day when somebody's really in crisis and they start bawling. Um, I guess I'll be glad he asked, but we wouldn't have expected it. What is your most dominant what is your most dominant emotion right now? Well, it'll depend on what's going on. It'll depend on the day, it'll depend on the minute. What's flashing through your mind? But many emotions you might have might be dominant. But that question in the new heavens and the new earth is going to have one consistent and confident and constant answer. 65 verse 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. What is the most dominant emotion in the new heavens and new earth? God's most dominant emotion will be joy. Joy in his people. And ours will be joy Joy in him, its length is forever, and its source is God. He made humans for deep and lasting happiness, and happy they will be. If time is longer than eternity in your mind, you'll have a hard time grasping this. But if eternity is longer than time in your mind, then hang on to it. Golly, it's hard to believe eternity is longer than time. Most of the day, it seems. But hang on to this. This is what God promises to those who wait. And look forward to this. In this new creation, they will be happy in him. But don't miss this, that because he will be with his people, he will be happy in his people. Don't miss that in heaven, there will be a constant circular give and take forever thing of an exchange of joy. Where God is happy in us and we are happy in him. It's like a marriage. Truly, a bride is happy on her wedding day before her groom is happy. Sorry, a bride is happy on her wedding day before her groom precisely because he is happy in her. There's no such thing as a happy bride who doesn't care about what her groom thinks with a grumpy groom. Unless she's there for some other reason. No, there is joy in the bride. All eyes are on her and she beams and we beam because she beams and it goes back and forth. And that's what the marriage between God and his people is like. An eternal back and forth of joy forever. And no competition in our hearts. Sure is hard to imagine being this happy when God, isn't it? 
Well, that's because our hearts are conflicted. Our hearts are occupied with so many competing, very small pleasures. The quality of this joy will be absolutely pure. And how? Because God will remove all competition. The things that make you sad, the things that distract you, the things that tempt you and take your mind off the Lord and off his word will be gone. The place will be filled with joy and empty of sorrow. Verse 19, no more shall there be heard in it a sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Nothing to cry about. What do you cry about? You won't remember it. It'll be remembered no more. No infants will die there. No miscarriages, no pain, no cancer, no being falsely accused, no depression, no loneliness, no longings that aren't fulfilled in the Lord. No hard work flushed down the toilet when the economy tanks. Here's an image. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is what we're waiting for and it doesn't get better than this and it's worth waiting for and it's longer than your life by eternity. Isaiah has come to us in three parts, following roughly the life of Jesus, his incarnation, the promise of a child, a shoot from the stump, his suffering, the promise of a suffering servant who would die in the place of his people, and the promise of a conquering king who would come and set everything right and rescue his people, Jesus' return. Well, in today's text, we found ourselves in much the same position as the original readers. Like them, we are experiencing the beginning of salvation, but waiting for its completion, and waiting is hard. We need a vision of who and what we're waiting for if we're going to wait well. To use the Bible's own stock supply to imagery, these days, these years, this life, this time is like birth pangs. Birth pangs. You see the life, there's life there, you can feel it, it's growing, it's getting closer, but the pain is there, you're throwing up, and more pain is to come, but it is worth the wait. It is worth the wait. God's promise is true. This is what the returning generation needed, and this is what we as Christians need today and every, every single day. And it's why many years later, Jesus Christ would reveal himself personally to the Apostle John in a vision and tell John to write down everything he showed him. Open with me to your Bibles in Revelation chapter 21. 21. I'm going to close by reading some verses from Revelation. John was in less than happy conditions on a prison floor on an island and gets this vision. He lived in the tension between Jesus' cross and resurrection in return. But he would see Jesus high and lifted up, a lamb on his throne. And his purpose in this vision through John is to instruct his church as to how to live faithfully in this world as we wait for the return of Jesus in victory and to rescue his people. Revelation 21. Remember Isaiah's vision about a new Jerusalem and a marriage between God and his people? Verse 1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Jerusalem has never been about GPS coordinates. It's always been about God, where God is with his people in purity and righteousness. And here we see the new Jerusalem filling the earth. Remember Isaiah's vision of a world emptied of sorrow, verse 4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Remember Isaiah's vision of a world without a sun because God's glory is so bright. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Remember Isaiah's vision about a servant who would die like a lamb? 22 verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Through the death of the lamb, the servant, God makes former enemies his servants to worship him forever. Remember Isaiah's words about the price of admission into all of this? Verse 17, let the one who desires to take the water of life take it without price. Faith is leaving this life and arriving before God, having emptied our pockets of anything we thought we could buy his favor with. There is nothing we can bring with which to buy God's eternal favor, except the gift that he gives, the payment that he makes, the payment he places in our account, which is Christ, the lamb. Remember Isaiah's words about waiting? Well, here's a reassuring word from Jesus in verse 20. Surely I am coming soon. Our waiting ends not at the new creation, but at the coming of Jesus, which is what we look forward to first, who will bring in a new creation. And so Peter asks, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And that's the question for us today. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening of the coming day of God and waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Who and what we're waiting for makes all the difference for how we live now. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word, words of comfort and words of warning to those who wait. We praise you for the vision of the return of Jesus Christ to rescue those who wait on him. And we praise you for the vision of the new creation that he will bring about. We praise you that you will end all suffering and wipe our tears and fill us with your joy forever as you delight in us. We pray to you as those who are contrite, asking even for help to be truly contrite for the sins that we know we don't, uh, we are not ashamed of as we should be. We need your help to believe the things that we've heard and to see the vision that we have been given for all that it is of Christ and the new creation he brings. It's in his name we pray, amen.